All right, Jesse, last week's best-selling author twist was insane. What's the story this time around? A hit-and-run accident reveals diabolical crimes and terrifying secrets that would take decades to unravel. At the heart of it all is the question of the victim's identity, and the truth will be shocking. I'm Andy Cassette, And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about depraved dads, murderous moms, and, as always, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. So yeah, welcome back everyone to Love Murder. If this is your first episode, we are so happy to have you. We are. And we're together. So it's again, I think this is our last, our last one together though. I know. Why do you need to bring that up? (laughs) (laughs) Then we will be back to Zoom. But for you guys, the content is always the same. And we are going to jump right into this case today because first of all, it is a listener request, which are always the best episodes. And it is from a mom and daughter, Chantel and Giabella from Staten Island requested this case. And it's really cute. They always listen together when they go to Giabella's cheer competitions. Oh, I remember those drives. Yeah, exactly. So we hope your team wins, first of all. Second of all, Chantel said that she likes how we always just jump right into the case. So I don't think we should be liars right now and we should just get to it. (laughs) It was a thunderstorm-soaked night in Oklahoma City in April of 1990 when a car full of passengers traveling the I-35 made a horrifying discovery. A young woman was lying face down on the side of the highway, still alive but gruesomely injured and convulsing terribly. 911 was called at 12.55 a.m. and paramedics immediately whisked the woman to Presbyterian Hospital. The police were quick on the scene where they discovered scattered groceries littering the patch of the road the victim had been discovered on, a loaf of bread, two containers of milk, a box of cookies, and two bottles of Dr. Pepper. Hmm. Amidst the groceries were also a broken radio antenna, a windshield wiper, flecks of red paint suspected to be from the vehicle that hit her, and a pair of headphones and portable radio that was presumably the victim's. After interviewing the clerk at the closest mini-mart, it was confirmed that the pretty blonde had purchased the food there and then was apparently walking back to the nearby Motel 6 when she was struck from behind. The victim was in bad shape when she arrived at the hospital, mostly out of consciousness. She could only moan, Daddy, Daddy, when she came to, and then she would fade once more. It always gets me when they call for their parents. Yeah. Upon medical inspection, the young blonde was found to be in her early 20s, and the wound pander did seem to match the assumption that she had been hit by a car. The bruises to the back of her legs and buttocks and a large hematoma at the back of her head were consistent with having been struck from behind, the bumper striking her legs, and the impact forcing her to have rolled backwards over the hood and over the top and rear of the car. Oh, my God. Oh, this is just horrifying. 
She also had bruises and cuts in varying stages of healing, suggesting that she had been abused. Okay. And she was, like, walking on the highway? Walking on the highway at, like, midnight to buy groceries at a mini mart. It's hard to see people on highways. They're not lit the way that a street that would have pedestrians on it should be lit. And at that time of night, people aren't really paying attention. Or they're intoxicated. Uh Exactly. The following morning, a 40-something man named Clarence Hughes came to claim the victim, saying that the woman in critical condition was his 23-year-old wife, Tanya, the mother of their two-year-old son, Michael. Big old age difference here. He claimed Tanya had left the motel for groceries shortly after midnight and he had fallen asleep. Clarence explained that his wife was an exotic dancer who occasionally went with men she met That's his quote. So it hadn't alarmed him that she hadn't returned. He did finally become alarmed when the woman at Motel 6 was like, hey, a woman was found matching your wife's description. Yeah. You need to call the hospital. So he did end up calling the police who brought him to the hospital where he made a positive ID on his comatose young bride. The man was odd, stilted, and off-putting. He seemed to have very little emotion about his partner and mother of his child being in critical condition. The first thing he did, which was super weird, was he demanded paper and a pen and he made a no visitors sign and affixed it to her hospital door. Like no visitors, including doctors and nurses or no like... like... no outside visitors, I'm guessing. Like detectives and police? I don't know exactly what he meant, but he didn't want anyone messing with his wife or finding out anything about her, apparently. The nurses had a bad feeling about the man and wondered what the angelic-faced young blonde saw in him. They seemed a most unusual couple indeed. The mystery of who this woman is, who Clarence Hughes really is, And the roadmap of trauma, torture, sexual abuse, and murder he inflicted would be nearly impossible to unravel, ultimately taking the FBI nearly 25 years to find the answers to some truly devastating lingering questions. Whoa. Yeah, this one, you think it's one thing and you just keep peeling the onion and it gets crazier and crazier it's like an awesome blossom but it's a it's an unawesome it's blossom an awesome blossom yeah it's an <laughs> un, awesome onion it is it's, it's like not a blooming onion it's a bumming onion <laughs> this is the terrible true story of franklin delano floyd a multi-generational soul annihilator also guys trigger warning this one has a lot of gritty stuff in it there's child sexual abuse and there's going to be a very small description of torture it's a rough one so if that's triggering for you set this one out i'll try to give you a little heads up as we get into that territory so after clarence declares no visitors he makes a payphone call to passions a tulsa strip club where tanya had been working he connects with connie who's another dancer whom tanya has grown close with Clarence demands that Connie get Tanya's money for him. I guess she had some money at the club. Okay. But forbids Connie from visiting at the hospital. No visitors. Upon getting off the phone, Connie immediately tells the club's owner that she believes Clarence tried to kill Tanya. Oh, whoa. Yeah. So Tanya was a really hard worker. She danced seven nights a week, only taking off Thanksgiving and Christmas Day because the holidays, they were closed. Not because... She was taking a day off. Yeah. 
Connie fumed first night she ever takes off and she ends up in the hospital. This is some bullshit. So she knows something's awry. And also, <laughs> classic Jesse Prey move. I am introducing our <laughs> primary source midway through the episode. The book I used for today's story is called A Beautiful Child by Matt Birkbeck. And I also got some more information from a medium post by Rebecca Schroeder called Secret Identities, Elaborate Lies, The Case of Franklin Delano Floyd. So he went like deep with all these people and he interviewed all the people that loved this woman, Tanya. So <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Birkbeck. So yeah, so Connie had hit it off with the bright and wise beyond her years, Tanya. Neither girl drank or used drugs that were so prevalent in the club, and Connie liked how Tanya read novels on slow nights. She also always seemed a cut above the usual employee of passions. And as much as Connie loved sweet Tanya, she despised her creepy, much older husband, Clarence. Whoa, those are strong words. Yeah, she really didn't like him. Clarence was controlling and abusive. Tanya worked every single night only to hand over the money to Clarence. And she was beat if she did not make $200 a night. Oh. Uh, so okay. like if So she went to went to work and told Connie this stuff. Yes. Okay. And he was like in the parking lot. He didn't have a job, so he would drive her to work and like wait in the parking lot. So he was like her her pimp, pimp. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and she would get like crazy panic attacks if it was like nearing the end of a slow night and, and she, she yeah. and she didn't have the money because she knew she was going to get beat. Oh my god. Yeah. So Connie begged her friend to leave the terrible relationship, you know, but Tanya was really really scared of Clarence. She was so scared that when she talked to Connie about her situation and about what it would look like to try to run away, she would literally tremble. She said that she had tried to run away twice before and both times he had found her. And he told her if she ran away again and he found her, he'd kill her. Yeah, hunt her down. And she believed it. She really did. Yeah. Despite this, Tanya had started a secret relationship with a kind college student named Kevin who had like come into the club like on like a like a boys night type of situation. Okay. And he had become completely infatuated with the super smart dancer who had aspirations beyond passions and beyond Tulsa. She was really, really bright and her dream had always been to go to college and study aerospace engineering actually. What? Yeah. So... This is kind of a, a tra tragic circumstance that we'll dig more into how she got from a bright high school student to this place. Okay. So she falls in love with this guy who's a college student who wants to help her go back to college and is totally willing to take on her two-year-old. And they start making plans to escape. So the two-year-old is with Clarence. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, it's, it's really sad because later on we'll talk about the effects of growing up with this man on the two-year-old. Yeah. And shortly hereafter, he's going to go live with another family. And they said that he had paralyzing fear of like closets and small places. Oh, And no. they basically because like, where is the kid if he's like sitting outside the club all night in the car? Yeah. He would just shut him up in a closet and like leave, lock him in a closet, lock him in a closet and leave him there all night long. It's <sighs> horrifying. Mm-hmm. So while she's like beginning to plan this, Connie said that she watched her depressed, downtrodden friend bloom with hope and optimism in the future. Like she's only 23. She's yeah. like, I can start over. I can have this beautiful life ahead of me. I need to escape, you know? Yeah. 
So when Connie heard about this so-called accident, she knew immediately that Clarence was behind it. So crazy. So crazy. So she called Kevin and the two rushed to Tanya's side. Medical personnel were happily surprised when Tanya, who was in a coma, turned her head towards Connie's voice and appeared to reach out for her hand. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the doctors had been super concerned that she might not recover from the blow to the back of her head. Okay. Because it seemed really, really bad. But the fact that when she heard Connie and then the same thing happened with Kevin. Okay. That that she was having this response. They're like, oh, my gosh, we might actually get her back. So they also like they allowed them to come in despite like the weird husband's no visitors situation. Yeah. Are you even allowed to do that? Like with that? It was, I mean, I guess you can, you can say on behalf of your loved one, you don't want like people coming into their hospital room. If like, you know, there's a contentious relationship in the family or something, it's going to stress the the victim out, you know, like I know some women who have like put in their birth plans that they don't want anyone allowed into their room, you know? Yeah. Which is also very different during COVID times. Nobody's getting in anywhere, but. Yeah. And I feel like different from someone who's in a coma. Yeah. yeah. I feel like birth is supposed to be like, it's the start of a new life and it's, you know, you should only have who you want to have there. But yeah, if you're in a coma, you'd think that anyone who loved you wanted to sit and talk and read to you or, you know, whatever they should be allowed to. So the doctors were already concerned about Tanya's husband. They got a real bad read on him. Like number one, the no visitor sign thing was very weird. Number two, he had removed all of her personal effects including her clothes from the hospital. Like what? he didn't leave like anything there. He didn't like bring anything in to make her room more comfortable or anything. He evidence? Like, yeah, evidence. He took everything yeah. with him to wow. destroy. And does the doctor like, do they think that way too? Or are they just thinking it's weird? Their red flags are going okay. up. So they're concerned. Oh, yeah. And number three, obviously most disconcerting was the history of abuse written all over her battered yeah, body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Given that Tanya had absolutely no broken bones, blood, or otherwise like road rash type of injuries, one doctor believed that the injuries might have been inflicted to resemble like her getting hit by a car, like that maybe he hit her with something to give her the hematoma. Whoa. And like then tried to make the injuries consistent. I mean, that's that's kind of a interesting way to go about murder, you know, to try to play it off. But they thought at least one doctor thought that was a possibility. Whoa. The medical staff ran interference with Clarence. So Connie and Kevin were not caught visiting and called them every time Clarence left so they could like get the people that were really like coaxing Tanya out of the coma to yeah, come. Yeah. Because she was not responding to Clarence. Uh, no. No. So so they were like, really like, please come back. And they were staying in a hotel because, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, like it was it was a drive, you yeah. know. So they also encouraged Connie to share everything she knew about the odd couple with Oklahoma City PD, which Good. Connie did. Good. Yeah. They're like, please like go tell them the backstory. We'll <laughs> tell them that we think something's really fucked up. Yeah. About this. Could you imagine like as she seems like she's her best friend at work at least. Yes. Like, so could you imagine you feeling that way about your best friend's partner and then having this happen? Like you would not want to keep your mouth shut. No. Straight to the police. Lock that mother effer up. Conditions improved for Tanya throughout Connie's visits, and Connie eventually returned to Tulsa to share the good news that it looked like Tanya was going to make it. However, the celebration was short-lived when Clarence told her he was taking Michael and moving. Where? 
Yeah. So she, he's like, I'm just going to clear out. I don't want to be here anymore. And she's like, wait a minute, your wife is in a coma. So she got a really bad feeling. Her feeling was that he was going to do something to her in the hospital and already be packed up and on the run. Yeah. Yeah. So she called the hospital and she's like, I am begging you. Do not allow him to be alone with her. I think something's going to happen because he is clearing out and he's getting ready to go on the run. Whoa. Her fears were confirmed when she was informed of Tanya's death the next day. And she had been like on the mend. So this is her dialogue with a nurse, according to A Beautiful Child. What happened, said Connie to the nurse. She was coming along. She was supposed to come out of it. We don't know, said the nurse. Her husband visited with her last night, and then this morning her vitals were falling. There was nothing we could do. She never came out of the coma. And I don't know, like, if he could have done anything to tamper with her, but it seems like a coincidence. They don't have any other... There was no, like, um, proof of anything that he had done. So this is, like, speculative and just us not liking Clarence. (laughs) This is this is all of our gut instincts going on yes. saying something's not right here. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, Connie also learned that Clarence hadn't even come back to the hospital because he had been there the night before. And so then they called him the next morning of when she course. actually died. Yeah. And, and like when she's failing, they're like, she's dying now. You need to come back and say your last goodbyes. And he's like, no, when she dies, just donate the organs and cremate her as soon as possible. Oh, my God. Didn't even come back to say goodbye to his wife. Oh, my God. Um, I wonder also, how much that, ha- like, happens. Oh, God, that's so sad. It has to just be in these weird circumstances when there's not any sort of, you know, he obviously is trying to get out. I also think it's so important, you know, we're going to go through this woman's life, and it's it's very hard for her to have people close to her, unfortunately, for many reasons. Yeah. But when I think about people dying alone, I think about the importance of building a chosen family. Yeah. Because... I know that not everyone is lucky enough to have a really good biological family. And like those of us, and I, I count myself among the people who are very lucky to have that. We are like, it's, it's, it's good and it's great and stuff, but everyone can, can build a chosen family. And it's important to have people there for you. And think about this, like her husband isn't there for her, but her chosen family of Connie and Kevin are, you know, the guy that she was trying to make her chosen boyfriend, you know? Yeah. Is everyone deserves to have somebody there with them at the end. Also, she found out that he had no intention of throwing her a funeral or paying for a gravesite. Wow. And so she's like, oh, hell no. So Connie got JR, the owner of Passions, to pay for her funeral and gravesite. Oh, my God. I know. I mean, really, like, strip club owner with a heart of gold. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so she informed Clarence. She was like, I don't care what you want to do, but we're throwing her a funeral and we're getting her a proper gravestone. Wow. Yeah. So she's still in touch with him at this time. Yes. And finally, before leaving, because of course, Connie like went straight to the hospital from Tulsa to try to like be with her and get answers. Yep. Before leaving, a nurse pulled Connie aside and told her that Michael, the two-year-old, had been filthy when he visited scarily silent. I mean, he's two. I have a two-year-old. They're never silent. Yeah. He didn't seem to have any emotional response to his mother dying, and he reeked of urine. What? Yeah. 
So she was like, thank God for this nurse. I know. Thank God for Connie and this nurse. And, and like people just in general paying attention to that weird shit, which, you know? which is like something that reminds me to keep all of our heads on a swivel, especially yeah. when children are involved. Well, I was going to say, I feel like as a mom, we're always doing that. Yes. Like, like the antenna crazy. is up. Yeah. In LA, when we're walking, I'll be like, mm, there's a crazy 10 o'clock. Just keep your eye out. Let's maybe stay on the side of the street. Like things mm-hmm. that like I never used to see before. Yeah. When it's just you, it's different. Yeah. I also think that you notice other kids that might be in peril constantly. Yeah. yeah. You know? So she strongly suggested that Connie called child services, which again, Connie did. Good girl. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, Clarence had come to a conclusion that he also needed to place Michael in temporary foster care while he coped with the loss of the boy's mother. A wonderful longtime foster couple named Ernest and Merle Bean took him in and were shocked at the state of the boy and his obvious developmental issues. He wouldn't speak at all, like not even a little bit, like not even like baby talk. He would cry for hours, hours on end, not no matter what they did, they couldn't get him to stop. And once he was worked up, he would smash his head into the floor or walls and like rock back and forth. Yeah. So they can report this, right? Yes, which they absolutely did. And they were patient and loving and it took a lot of time, but they slowly drew him out of his shell. Good. I mean, I feel like too, you can still. There's still, yeah, there's still a lot of. A time to undo that damage, you yeah. know? Yeah. Connie's complaint and report of not only abuse, but her belief that Clarence killed Michael's mother persuaded the court not to release Michael back into Clarence's custody. Good. They wanted to do a full investigation. So there's a potential that he could still get him back, but they're they're going to look into it. The Beans were not afraid of the challenge and couldn't help but want to help the clearly abused child. So they were delighted to keep little Michael and vowed to do everything in their power to make sure he didn't end up back with Clarence. Okay. Yeah, I guess uh, Merle was like at the first, like the first night when he was like would not stop crying and was like, you know, self-harming. And they have like other kids. They have biological and foster kids like in their home. She was like, oh my God, do not ask me to keep this kid because I can't, this is so much, I can't deal with it. And they just fell in love with him and they saw that he just needed like care and love of parents who loved him and he needed like these foster siblings, you know? Mm -hmm. And they went from literally that first day being like, please don't ask me to keep this babe so I will fight for this kid, you know? It's awesome. (laughs) Meanwhile, after Tanya's organs were harvested, a full autopsy was performed and Tanya's extensive injury, both new and old, were recorded. The pathologist also noted that Tanya had had several pregnancies. Uh... And there's only one kid and appeared to have been worked on by a particularly bad plastic surgeon. Oh, no. Because she had highly unnatural looking breast and butt implants. Oh, no. Also, nobody needs that at 23. No. No, y'all perfect. 23-year-old bodies are perfect. (laughs) You're good just the way you are. Oh, no. Yeah. Under cause of death, he marked closed head injury. And under manner of death, he selected homicide. Stop. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. So it was it was clear to him that somebody had tried to kill this woman. Wow. Okay. So after an excruciatingly cringy funeral in which Clarence had screamed at the well-meaning he funeral goers. He showed up? Oh, yeah. He showed up and he said... 
she had secrets that will never be revealed and it would be best for all of you to just let things be bury her and let things be do you hear me let things be Okay, creepy Clarence. Like at the fuck funeral. Off. Are yeah. you serious? Connie was pissed. Why is he even there? Yeah, he then tried to cash in on an eighty thousand dollar life insurance policy he had on her. Good and- luck, dude. Yeah. Good luck. Well, you would not believe how stupid this is. He is the biggest dummy in the entire world. Let's talk about this call he made to try to cash in on the life insurance Please tell me you have the recording. No. (laughs) No, I wish I did. But I do have an account from Matt Birkbeck's book, A Beautiful Child. The clerk asked Clarence for his social security number, then asked him to sit tight. He returned to the phone a few minutes later, asking again for Clarence's social security number. There seems to be a problem with the number you gave me. It doesn't exist, said the clerk. Clarence apologized, saying he mixed up his numbers and gave him another number. The clerk asked Clarence to hold on, then returned a few minutes later. Sir, we seem to have a problem here. What number did I give you, said Clarence. Oh, no, I'm, I'm so confused. I buried my wife today. I'm sure you can understand. Clarence gave the clerk a third nine-digit oh, number. Oh, my God. Then can't wa- keep track of his different socials that uh-huh. he's stolen? Then waited nervously, remaining on the phone a full five minutes before the clerk returned. Everything is in order, he said quickly. Clarence noticed a slight change in his voice. After hanging up the phone, Clarence packed his bags and drove out of Tulsa heading east. He knew that the final social security number given to the clerk was not for Clarence Hughes, but for a Franklin Delano Floyd. He also knew when the clerk saw the name, he would no doubt notice that Floyd was a federal fugitive on the run from the authorities since 1973 for parole violation and attempted kidnapping. Oh my God. This motherfucker's name is Frank. It's Frank Delano, Franklin Delano Floyd. Oh my God. It's kind of like, that's got like a John Wayne Gacy thing to it. Like where in John Wayne Gacy's case, they named him John Wayne after the actor. Yeah. So clearly his parents named them after Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Of course. He's really, uh, you know, standing up to the name. He's really setting that bar low. Jeez oh Louise. If this was limbo, he'd be winning. How low can you go? How low can you go? So the insurance company notified the police who contacted the U.S. Marshal's office. It didn't take long following conversations with the Oklahoma City Police Department to realize that Floyd was probably armed and considered very dangerous. Police strongly believed, based on the coroner's report, that Floyd, a.k.a. Clarence Hughes, killed his wife ostensibly to collect her insurance money and were gathering evidence in the hopes of bringing charges forward. They also learned that Tanya obtained her Oklahoma driver's license using a phony birth certificate. What? So Tanya's not who she says she is either. What, is she like underage or something? Well, it's going to be a long story, Andrea. (sighs) Sit tight. (laughs) Sit sit tight enjoy the show. (laughs) We're together for like two weeks and we're already bitching. Uh, how how we get used to this luxury, huh? Seriously, the luxury of spending every single day together. Yeah. Every single waking moment that the babies aren't sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> so when the U.S. Marshals arrive at Clarence Hughes' apartment, 
Obviously, he was already gone. On the lam. With Clarence, a.k.a. Franklin Delano Floyd, in the wind, the Beans began proceedings to officially adopt Michael. Awesome. Yes, who, after three months, finally stopped aggressively rocking and self-harming and was showing progress. But he, he still didn't speak a word for an entire year. Yeah, but if he's if the other things are already changing, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, they were very, very pleased with his progress. And he was turning into a warm little boy. The manhunt for bail jumping and potentially murderous Floyd was ongoing. And the next question was to determine who Tanya was and where she had come from. Connie was eager to inform Tanya's family of her passing. She knew that someone as lovely and deeply good as Tanya must have someone who was missing her. So she endeavored to track them down and let them now know where she was buried. Turning to the Passions employment application, she noted that Tanya's maiden name was Tadlock and she was from Alabama. With the help of JR, the owner, she got 20 listings related to Tadlock in Alabama from the operator, and the two began to cold call, which oh is so God. sweet. I know, but it's also like if someone doesn't mention their family one time, there has maybe to be they a don't, reason. Yeah, maybe yeah. they don't want their family mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Like, and none of them came to her funeral. None of them knew well, of they, her passing. They said that what she was afraid of, Connie was afraid of that Clarence was abusive, and he had done the classic abuser technique of alienating yeah. her friends and family. Yeah. So she was afraid that this was a Clarence issue and that he had like taken her from her family yeah. and that they deserved to know that she had died and that she was as opposed to her not wanting to be near her family. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So she was like kind of like I don't think this would be Tanya's yeah. choice. So JR eventually reached a woman who identified herself as Tanya's mother. He steeled himself and he told the older woman the tragic news that her daughter had passed away in a car accident the week before. Excuse me, the woman said. I'm calling to tell you that Tanya is dead, ma'am, JR repeated. The woman shocked him by replying, sir, I don't know what you're pulling or if you're just mistaken, but my daughter's been dead for 20 years. So that's the identity that she stole? Mm -hmm. Okay. She died when she was a child and only 18 month old from pneumonia. She's buried in a cemetery near me, Tanya Dawn Tadlock. So they're like, okay, what the hell? So yeah. of course they inform the police of that. Okay. Yeah. So she stole the identity of a poor dead little yes. toddler. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Who was Tanya? Yeah. The FBI tracked down Floyd in Augusta, Georgia, and he was arrested. He had been a fugitive on the run for 17 years. He contacted an attorney and told DHS that he intended to fight for custody of his son after serving his sentence for attempted kidnapping and jumping bail. The Beans were like, oh, hell no, and decided to mount a legal battle to retain custody of the clearly abused child. As part of the custody battle, Floyd is required to take a paternity test. Well, this is crazy because if Maury was on the show, he would say, Floyd, you are not the father. Which would usually bring some joy to whatever man is sitting on that couch. But <laughs> yeah, usually they get jumping up and down and going, ah, ah, ah. I told you. I told you. <laughs> I told you I was not that baby's daddy. <laughs> so she's not who she says she was. He's not who he said he was two times over, maybe three times over. And now he might not even be the father of this kid who he abused. Yeah, he's definitely not the father. Wow. Yep. 
So at this point, Michael had been having visitation with him. Like he'd been allowed to go see him at the jail. Unreal. And uh, you're really going to do that to a two year old? Well, the beans were like, this is screwed up. Every time he's forced to see that man, he regresses regresses terribly. You cannot take him, make him see that man. But they had previously thought it was his father and his father was requesting it. So they were allowing it. And so How now, can that happen if it's clear that the father has been abusing the child? Uh, I mean, there was no like marks on his body. There was nothing that was like clear evidence. It was just a behavioral issue. And I mean, there's some situations where you can have perfectly lovely families and there's still going to be some sort of developmental or behavioral issue. You have a dude no was problem. on the run. Now he's incarcerated. Yeah. He, I mean, I think it, the beans felt the same way. They felt like something yeah. was wrong with this child, yeah. you know? So luckily, though, when this paternity test reveals that he's not actually Michael's father, then the courts rescind all visitation and they allow the beans to continue adoption proceedings. So they're like, nobody has a claim on this kid. You want this kid, you get this kid. However, Floyd has his attorney continue to fight for custody when he is released from prison in March of 1993 after serving his 33-month sentence. How is he only serving a 33-month sentence? I have no idea what they serve for bail jumping. I think that's not a big one. I'm surprised that attempted kidnapping, also being on the run for so long, doesn't tack on any more time. Yeah, no shit. But yeah, that's less than three years. Yeah. So he gets out in March of 1993. As part of his bid to get the now five-year-old Michael back, he got a decent job as a maintenance man in an apartment complex in Oklahoma City. And he even began psychiatric counseling to prove that he was a mentally fit parent. And his whole argument doubt was it. like, <laughs> agreed, <laughs> hard doubt, hard doubt it. His whole thing was like, his fight was like, what is the definition of a parent? If he had been at the child's birth, which he was, and if he was in the child's life for that long and like technically maybe his stepfather, you know, he was, you and know. And then locking him in the closet. Yeah. But I mean, Michael only told the beans about that later. I mean, I'm sure it would come up if it was a real bad custody battle, but I mean, he was not going to get, he was not going to get Michael, but he, he really kept fighting. So he got this job at this apartment complex as a maintenance man. And his boss there described him actually as a model employee. It really did kind of seem like Franklin was getting his shit together until a terrifying incident incurred on July 4th of 1994 to a woman who lived in his apartment complex. Oh. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> You're correct. As usual. As usual, you are. You are correct. Spot on. So this is Matt Bergbeck's account of what happened. Carrie Box is the name of the woman, spent the 4th of July holiday at a friend's house and at the end of the day decided to race her boyfriend back to their home at the Lyrewood Point Apartments. Box in her mid-20s would run the few blocks home while her boyfriend would run to their car and try to beat her to the front door. This does not seem like fun or flirty. Um, This seems like 100% something I would have done when I was training for a marathon. (laughs) 
I'd be like, I can beat you home just running. <laughs> I like 100% resonate with this because it's shocking. Andy and I are best, 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 best friends <laughs> because our ideas of fun are very different. <laughs> when you were saying that, I was like, how are they doing this? <laughs> yeah. So she's basically really fit and she's a good runner. And she's like, I, it was like a cute game between them. Like she liked to try to beat him home while he was driving the car. Oh, he was driving. He was driving. They're not like like foot racing. I thought they were foot racing. Oh. You may- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he is driving and she's like, she gets her jollies off being faster than him driving the car. Okay. Yeah. Still not fun or flirty. I don't know. I think it's kind of fun. Also, when I was, um, guys, I ran the Boston Marathon in... Uh, <laughs> in 2009 and I can't believe it has taken me 54 episodes to bring that up because it's really good bragging point in my life. Who was life. in the last mile? The Andy was right there last mile on the bridge going you got this! You got this bitch! <laughs> <laughs> yeah but when I was like actually running a lot and super fit I would have thought this was extraordinarily fun. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay so anyway she does win. She beats him home. But upon entering her apartment, she saw a man standing in her bedroom rummaging through her dresser drawers. Um, what? Can you even imagine? No. He held a pair of boxes panties in <gasps> one hand close to his nose. Ew! And a knife in the other hand. He saw her standing there, ran toward her, and knocked her to the floor. As Box tried to fight him off, her arms made contact with a knife, producing deep gashes. The man punched her in the eye, then reached for her panties, saying, your boyfriend paid me to do this. Huh? He had not. He had not. Spoiler alert. He had not. Box continued to fight, fearing for her life. Her boyfriend arrived and tried to pin the man down, but he managed to run out the door. The boyfriend followed, tracked him down, and held him until the police arrived. Good boy. Yeah, so Gary Holman is his parole officer. So he returned from a festive 4th of July holiday to learn that Franklin Floyd had been arrested and charged with aggravated assault for his attack on Carrie Box. Floyd's position as a maintenance man required that he have master keys to all of the apartments. Ew. Oh, my God. I wonder how much, how often that happened. He was actually doing that. Yeah. And Floyd used his key to let himself into Box's apartment. Police found a pair of panties in his back pocket. Also, like, he was pulling the panties out of the drawer. Yeah, they're not going to smell. No, they're going to smell like detergent. You, you got to wipe. Hey, if you're going to be gross, get over to the hamper. Yeah. Creeper. Creep. Dumb creeper. Dumb. He's a really dumb creeper. Dumb creeper. Mm-hmm. What's worse than a creeper? A dumb, dumb creeper. creeper. Actually, maybe they're better, though, because they don't get away with creeping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we want more dumb creepers so they get caught. <laughs> So Holman knew, despite Floyd's talk to the contrary, that he was dangerous. This is his parole officer. He now believed that Floyd was pure evil, even after listening to Floyd scream during a meeting at the county jail. It's a bum rap. I was framed, yelled Floyd. You were framed? Changing your identity three times and creeping in some young woman's room, smelling her panties? Who put the panties in your pocket, sir? Did somebody shove them down there? The police you planted always them? travel with a knife in your pocket? Yeah. So his parole officer returned to his office and he told his bosses that under no circumstances was Floyd to be freed on bail and parole officials had to find some creative loophole to keep him there. Why? 
Why? Why would you let him out? Exactly. After everything he's done. And he's clearly a flight risk. You have to be creative to keep him locked mm-hmm. up. But his parole could not be revoked until the assault charge was adjudicated. And that was not going to happen anytime soon. Mac Martin made an appearance before the Oklahoma County District Judge. And to Homan's disbelief, Floyd was released on $7,000 bail. Uh, excuse me? He returned to the Oklahoma halfway house and his activity was dramatically curtailed. Floyd was fired from the apartment complex and found a job as a painter. He was allowed to leave the home in the mornings to go to work, but ordered to return at the end of his day. On the heels of his arrest, the state court scheduled the evidentiary hearing for September 23rd and would deliver its decision on Floyd's bid to regain custody of Michael. Floyd knew that if he was found guilty of the assault charge, he'd have no chance at ever receiving custody of Michael. Desperate and obsessed with the boy he called his own, Floyd decided to take matters into his own hands. By September 12th, 1994, Michael was a happy and thriving six-year-old boy who had improved. Oh, it's going to make me so mad if he fucks with him. You're going to get so mad. It was an ordinary day when the little guy got up, got dressed, ate his breakfast, brushed his teeth with the help of Merle Bean, and went to his first grade class at Indian Meridian Elementary School in Choctaw. Completely ordinary until Franklin Delano Floyd took the principal hostage at gunpoint and forced him to aid in the abduction of little Michael. Um, what? Yeah, so basically... He goes into the school office with a gun and he has it hidden at first. And then he said he wanted to speak to the principal. How old is this dude at the time? Uh, He's in his, God, late 40s at this point. Yeah. And he, you know, waits outside and then the guy's like, okay, you can come in and talk to me. And he's like, shows him the gun. He's got it like in his jacket. And he's like, tell me who the first grade teachers are. And so he, like, I guess knew who Michael's first grade teacher was. He, like, knew the name of her. So when he's like, that one, he's like, okay, we're going to go take a walk. And we're going to go to Mrs. So-and-so's classroom. And I'm going to be right there with you. And you're going to peek your head in. And you're going to say, I need to see Michael now. I am going to pull him out of class. Oh, my God. And, of course, the guy was terrified. So he did it. I hope in most schools now they have, like, emergency buttons. 100% I think they do. Okay. I think that obviously this is... 90s, right? 94. So this is a totally different time. But I don't know. I don't even know if like... I went to a really small high school. I don't know if they would have emergency things set up like this. But I also think though... I'm I'm surprised that like the school secretary wouldn't notice or somebody else wouldn't uh, notice. That's so weird. Like some random guy pulling the principal out of his office. Yeah. So they go for a walk together. They go get Michael. And I don't actually know like what Michael's response was. He seemed to just go with it as well. He obviously recognized him. And he's like, okay, now we're going to go and get into your car. You're going to peek your head in and tell the secretary that you're taking a walk that you need to get some air. And then we're going to go out and they get into the principal's car. He had a white pickup truck. So they drive about a mile and a half away to where there's like a campsite. And it's clear to the principal that he's been like camping out wherever this like place in the woods is a mile and a half away from the elementary school. Okay. And he leaves Michael in the truck and he takes the principal out like even further into the woods and he handcuffs him to a tree. Okay. 
And then he leaves. Okay. He didn't shoot him. He did not shoot him. So the guy just like basically screamed for like two hours until somebody heard him and he was released. Oh my God. Terrifying. Can you imagine being handcuffed to a tree and you don't know if anyone's going to find you ever? No. No. But also like you're a principal of a school of young children. Like you have to be dreading what is happening to the little boy. Oh my God. Poor Michael. And this is profoundly devastating situation because he was finally happy. Yeah. He, he, had, he had parents and he had siblings and he had a community that loved him and was all like binding together to help him. And this mother fucker comes out of the blue and rips that happy life away from him. <sighs> so now that he's on the run with Michael... Let's talk about the backstory of this complete dirtbag and maybe discover the true identity of sweet Tanya. Franklin Delano Floyd was born the youngest of five kids in Barnesville, Georgia, to a career alcoholic father who routinely beat his wife and kids and eventually succumbed to liver and kidney failure and died at age 32. Oh, what? You got to drink a lot to completely kick your liver at 32. Whoa. Yeah. Well, usually the death of an abusive asshole is a good thing, but Floyd's mother could no longer support her children without her husband's salary, and she dumped the kids in an orphanage when Floyd was only two. Wow. I don't think that she really was the best mom either. I This was an unfortunate situation, absolutely, with her husband. Yeah. But based on some stuff that happens later, it seems like, shh, I don't know how they, how or why they had all those kids. I guess no birth control back then. So that's why. Yeah. Because it didn't seem like either parent was especially parental. This orphanage was horrifying. The children were frequently beat with belts as punishment. And once when a preteen Floyd was caught masturbating, his hand was placed in a pot of boiling hot water. What? As a punishment for touching a stick. Okay. So boys aren't supposed to masturbate. Yeah, that's going to create some problems. Uh, Yeah, no shit. And it did because Floyd claims he was raped by a group of boys when he was only six years old. What do you expect? (sighs) It's just devastating. Oh, my God. That is horrid. One by one, his older siblings left the home, and eventually Franklin was kicked out at the age of 15 and sent to live with his older sister Dorothy and her family. Dorothy's husband knew something was not right with Franklin, and he didn't want him around his kids. Super smart. Yeah, I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. So thank goodness he had a good gut instinct. So he sent him packing after only a couple weeks. Floyd then tracked down his mother in Indiana, who was now working as a sex worker and was unable or uninterested in housing or caring for her youngest child. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, she was just like, I'm, I dropped you off at an orphanage. Why are you here? I don't yeah. want anything to do with you. Floyd convinced her to forge papers saying that he was over 18 so he could join the military, but he was kicked out six months later when they discovered the forgery. Yeah. He went back to Indiana to find his mother, but she had disappeared. I was going to say, I'm shocked that he tracked her down the first time. Yeah, she was gone when he went back to the same place where she had been. Thus began his drifting and criminal career. He was arrested in 1960 after breaking into a Sears store and was actually shot by the police in the stomach while being apprehended. Why? I thought that was like the worst place that you can get shot. He survived the surgery. I mean, he had to have immediate surgery and he survived it. And he was sent to a juvenile delinquent hall where he remained until August 1961. Okay. 
In November of 1961, he was back in jail for violating his parole. And in June of 1962, he committed his most horrifying, disgusting crime yet. How old is he now? 19. So he's 19 years old. And he kidnapped a four-year-old girl from a bowling alley and sexually assaulted her. Oh, my God. Guys, this Uh. is uh, one of the trigger warnings, like, go forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear about this. A physical examination showed semen stains on the child as well as bite marks on and around her vagina. She's four. Four years old. That's like, because how old was he when he said he got raped? Six. He was six? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, this is not a shocker. No. This is not at all a shocker. Uh, it's just, it's devast- horrifying, devastating and horrifying and sickening and sad and scary. Like, I mean, we need to do better for our children and for victims of sexual assault, especially like minor ones. Getting there, you know, even just like our knowledge of patterns and, you know, cyclical behaviors and you know, how that all works. The fact that we're even talking about that is so far ahead of where they were We've in been. the 1960s and 70s. Oh, yeah. This, you know, like, oh, my God, it's just it's crazy. Like, it's crazy. And this is this is the problem. I mean, we'll, we're going to get into very shortly. We're going to get into also his prison experience, which also is not helpful. So he was caught and sentenced to oh 10 to 20 years in jail for child molestation. A couple months later, he was remanded to a mental hospital for psychiatric testing, which obviously he needs. And he managed to escape and then went on to rob a bank and was caught again and sentenced to 15 more years for the robbery. And he was then sent to federal prison in Chillicothe, Ohio. Chillicothe. Chili coffee. You told me that one. Yeah. The first time we did, we did a story in Chili coffee. Chili coffee. Chili coffee. Chili Chilla, coffee. There you go. Yeah. And Andy had Andy, our, our Midwestern girl. Andy's our everything girl. I'm like, if it's Midwestern, it's Andy. If it's California, it's Andy. If it's Boston, it's Andy. Andy's been around the country. <laughs> Chili coffee. There we go. Two months later, he even attempted to escape with two other inmates by hot wiring a prison truck and crashing it through a fence. What? Yeah. Didn't think this one through, though, because when they crashed it through the fence, it damaged the truck to the point that it couldn't run anymore. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't get very far at all. And they just they, got to the fence. Yeah. And they got <laughs> recaptured and it added five years to his sentence. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I can understand, though, why he wanted to get out of jail so badly, because as we all know, people in prison do not look kindly on pedophiles. Yeah. Well, that was what I was... Just going to say, first of all, the fact that he only has 10 to 20 years for raping a four-year-old girl and there's people in jail for possession of marijuana. Insane. Literally makes me want to gouge my own eyes out. Like, this is absolutely broken. And I don't even smoke weed, but the fact that marijuana is legal in however many states And they still haven't freed people who are in jail. And this motherfucker bit around some poor little baby girl's vagina. Who is now traumatized for life. And got 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. When you do that to a child, you're essentially killing the child which in is, some way. Which is why I love the, in prison, that kind of... Divide. Yes. Well, what it's almost like a caste system. In, yeah. In prison 100%. where they are essentially like, they don't they like gash your face if you are a pedophile? 
That's I mean, they they did uh, they did a lot to this guy. Yeah, when so, he was in jail. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, in the prison culture, if something if you do something to a child, then they ident they mark you. Yeah, so that you're identifiable to the other to the inmates. other inmates. Yeah, and you know. To be honest, I normally am like, good, you do that to a kid, you deserve it to be done to you. But at the same time, they're going to let him out. He's only getting 10 to 20 years. He's only like, at Which this is point, 19, reason, 20. I think why they mark them so that when they're out, they even know. Well, he didn't get marked on his face at least, but he got raped and beaten near constantly to the point where he tried to commit suicide. He wanted to get to the top of the jail so he could jump off the roof because he was getting beat and raped so routinely. And he eventually ended up submitting to a daddy in order to survive. Yeah. So he still had to do sex protected, but he was protected at least. So yeah, that's not going to like make a better human. No, that's not rehabilitation. No, I mean, no. Come yeah. On. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh man. He was eventually let out of prison in November of 1972. That's 10 years. I was just going to say 10 mm-hmm. years later. Wow. They he really was- didn't have any interest in keeping him for longer. No. So he's let out and he was paroled to a halfway house where he remained until January 27th, 1973, when he attempted to kidnap a woman at a gas station. How old was she? She was like in her early 20s as well. Okay. Wow. Thankfully, she fought him off, managed to escape, and was able to alert the authorities. I mean, could you imagine? Um, fight with everything oh you got. Same. Gouge their eyes, <sighs> like bite Spray their dick gas, off. Whatever. Yeah. Cut them. Whatever you have to do, just fight. It's so crazy because, like, I grew up in the suburbs always, like the suburbs of Chicago, though. And so I remember my dad teaching me to always have my keys in my hand between my knuckles. Yeah. And just, like, when I was walking in the car, always have my keys. And, like, that. there's so many instances and stories where I'm always like, man, if you have your keys, just pop them. I know. Pop them with fucking keys. And I think the other thing that I always have to remember and I want to tell our kids you got to get out of the car. Yeah. You do whatever you can. Like if you're like, if they're like, get in the car, I have a gun. You you don't do like what you're told because they, if they get you in a car and take you to another location, they're going to get you. Yeah. Yeah. You've said that before. I think yeah. in the episode with them. Um, oh, the sex slave murderers. Yeah. When they're like. That was episode 10. Yeah. Leaving wow, the party. So long ago. That was episode 10. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. So long ago. It doesn't feel that long ago. No. Uh, yeah. Okay. So she did fight him off and Floyd is arrested for the attempted kidnapping, but managed to post the $3,000 bond and jumped bail, never showing up for his June 11th trial. This is the one he's on the, the run from. So this is the occurrence where they then lose him for but it was 17 only $10, years. $10,000? was three thousand dollars three thousand dollars is it yeah after after what happened with the four-year-old mm-hmm. yeah so after that he is in the wind for the next 17 years with not so much as a hit on his record until the dumbass used his real social security number to ah! cash in on his dead wife's life insurance policy oh he's not good with numbers no he's not good with numbers <laughs> no he doesn't know no so all of this is what the cops know. So this is the stuff that they have under his actual name, right? Yeah. But they don't know what happened in those mystery years. They don't know where he is 
currently with yeah. Michael. And he also can't cash out on that money. He, he's on the run with no money. Yeah. They also don't know who the hell Tanya really is. So immediately the FBI is involved because they're like, we got a real problem here. And naturally, there are very real fears for Michael's life. First of all, Floyd is a convicted child rapist. So there's that. But there's also some hope that the child meant so much to him that he might keep him alive, Mm. you know? Yeah. But the FBI basically is like, even if he does love the child, at some point, his fear of getting caught is going to outweigh his love of the child. So they're like, even if he is alive right now, he's going to be dead in seven to 10 days. So we got to get cooking. Whoa. Yeah. I love that they just go straight to the FBI. Yeah, because they were like, this is over our heads. We need, we need help here. Yeah, that makes me happy that they. Yeah, they don't get into like some jurisdictional dick show. Yeah. Yeah. Jurisdictional dick show. <laughs> Jurisdictional <laughs> dick show. Jurisdiction show. That's going to be our next podcast, guys. Jurisdictionshow.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they're definitely working every angle to get into this mystery and figure out where he's been, where he might be going, what could predict his behavior to profile. Like, they're doing the whole thing. Okay. So they discover that he first went by an alias of Trenton Davis and lived in Oklahoma City from 1975 to 1978. And then he went by the name Warren Marshall in Louisville, Kentucky, Atlanta, Phoenix, and Tampa from 1980 to 1988. Then, of course, he turned up in Tulsa as Clarence Hughes and with a new wife, Tanya, whom he presumably killed. So now having tracked his general whereabouts for those lost years, they send out bulletins to the FBI offices in those areas to interview anyone who knew him back with whatever name he was using at that point and attempt to discover like what his patterns are, where he like learn about his past to predict his future, essentially. Okay. One week into the search, they connect with an ex-colleague who not only knew and remembered Floyd as Trenton Davis, he even had a photo of the man during that era. Whoa. The man turned over a wallet-sized photo of Floyd posing for a studio photo with a blonde little girl. The old co-worker said that the little girl was Floyd's daughter, Suzanne, She looked about five or six years old, and she was unsmiling, clearly unhappy. Oh, I know where this is going. Uh Uh-huh. The field agent sent it to Special Agent Fitzpatrick, the lead on the case, and his jaw dropped as he compared it to the other photos of Floyd, his wife, Tanya, and her son, Michael. Oh, my God, he shouted. He kidnapped her, too. Oh, my God. Tanya Dawn Tadlock Hughes was little Suzanne Davis. Oh, my God. So this monster kidnapped a little girl, sexually assaulted her and sexually trafficked her her entire life, murdered her and then impregnated her and kidnapped her son. Whoa. Isn't that insane? He's like the ultimate evil. That's why I call him a multi-generational soul annihilator. Yep. Uh, Because he took any... Form of happiness from three generations. The only thing that could make this worse is if it was his daughter, which was what I thought for a second. Yeah, it was not his daughter. Thank God. Yeah. And Michael is technically not his biological son. 
So she got pregnant from someone else while exactly. he was trafficking her. Wow. What a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. So after finding Michael, that's their number one priority. Yeah. The number two priority is now uncovering Suzanne slash Tanya's real identity. So they go back and they're now looking for Suzanne as a child. So she was then a child and associated with, of course, Trenton Davis and discovered that the pair fled Oklahoma City in 1978 when a babysitter accused Floyd of sexually molesting Suzanne. And where did he get her? That's this remains a huge unsolved mystery about this case. Like no family was missing their baby girl. So luckily there's been an update. So I will have an update for you at the end of the episode. But while they're working this case, they are desperately trying to figure out who this girl's family, real family is. Whoa. So, and they, they know that he's not actually her father because they have the DNA from the paternity test. Yeah. There would have been a familial link if Michael was absolutely Tanya's son. Yeah. And there was no genetic to him, to to Clarence, you know? So- After the babysitter tried to turn him in for sexually assaulting his own daughter, they turned up in Louisville in 1980 as Warren and Sharon Marshall. And so I'm going to call her mostly Sharon going forward because that's what she was called for most of her life. And the case is mostly associated with the name Sharon Marshall. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's put a pin in Sharon's life for a second and go back to what's going on with Michael. Okay. So Special Agent Fitzpatrick notified the State Department of Transportation offices in Oklahoma, Kentucky, Georgia, Arizona, and Florida. Basically all of his favorite places. It seems like he ping-pongs to those places. Okay, and like sent out a what we have nowadays as an Amber Alert. Exactly. And was basically like be on the look and be on the lookout for all of these names. Trenton Davis, Clarence Hughes, and Warren Marshall, as well as, of course, Franklin Delano Floyd. And nearly two months after Michael has been taken, a man named Warren Marshall tried to renew his Florida driver's license. <sighs> I know. he. This guy is just such an idiot. Of course. Of course. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, he was found in Louisville, Kentucky. Fitzpatrick rushed to Louisville, where Floyd was working as a used car salesman, and they arrested him at the lot. Embarrassing. <laughs> that, yeah, doesn't... You're not going to get salesman of the, the year or no. the month with that going on. No. The thing was that Michael wasn't with him. <sighs> Jessica. I know. Floyd had the following items in a bag with him. A single bus ticket from Atlanta to Louisville, dated September 30th. The boy was kidnapped on September 12th. A map of Atlanta, a wallet with three photos in it, one of Sharon as a teenager, another of Michael as a naked baby in his crib, and a third of an unidentified dark-haired woman. Most chillingly was an address book that had the name and current address of the now-grown woman he had raped when she was four. I don't know how he got it. It doesn't seem like he used it. Like, she doesn't remember him being around. But that is terrifying. What was he going to do? He was going to go and re-traumatize her? Holy shit. In regards to little Michael's whereabouts, Floyd just lied, 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 oftentimes changing his story, but never once saying anything that resembled the truth. He said first that the mafia kidnapped him. And then at some point he's like, I actually gave him to an elite group of people that are going to protect him. Obviously. So he's 
off his rocker. Off his rocker, lying and ne- never once telling anything that even resembles the truth. So you just did that for no fucking reason. No fucking reason. You just ripped him away from his life that he was starting to get used to for no reason. Just because of control. You lousy piece of shit. Yeah. So at this point, the FBI was like, we can't find him. It's been two months. He killed him. He killed him. And and we can't get any answers out of him right now. In fact, some people did say that Floyd had told them that he killed the little boy. But also all of those were conflicting stories. He had told his sister that he had drowned Michael in a motel bathtub in Atlanta. But he also then told another one of his jailhouse friends. What did his sister friends, do? Nothing? I think she told the police. She did tell the police. Okay. But the police didn't know what was true because he also told like a cellmate that he had dropped Michael off of a bridge and listened to him scream the whole way down. So he's... And why did they not admit him to a psych ward? I do not know. Maybe, I don't know if there was something about also like the security because remember he escaped from that other psych ward. Oh my God. Yeah, this this man is a total monster. He also refuses to give any information about Sharon's true identity, but he does admit that he has had her since she was a child. Had her. Yep. So he claims that they, that he took her from a bad situation, that mm-hmm. she sure. yeah. had a mother who was a, a sex worker who was addicted to drugs and he took the child away to protect her. Yep. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. He's so godly. Yes, it's so it was so kind of him to mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. While they're preparing for trial in the kidnapping case, the kidnapping case of Michael, another horrifying discovery is made. They find the principal's stolen truck that Floyd had taken. So, I didn't know this, but it, and at least in this situation, this is how it happened. The principal had insurance on his truck, so he filed a claim and used the money to buy a new truck. Yeah. And then when the stolen vehicle is found, apparently then the insurance company can sell it to recoup some of their money. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I just, I don't think I ever thought about how that happened, how that worked, you know? Yeah. So that's what happened. So the, the, the stolen pickup truck was auctioned and it was bought by a mechanic in Kansas. And so the mechanic's doing some work on it and he finds a manila envelope taped to the gas tank, like behind, like underneath. Okay. He opened it up. And was completely disgusted and frightened at what he found. He immediately alerted the police who informed the FBI. What did he find? There were 97 photos in all. And almost all of them were child pornography. Like Polaroids? Just various types of photographs. I mean, we're talking 90s. So there's different. I mean, they kind of spanned some time. So there was all sorts of different types of photos. But yeah, there are like IRL photos. There appeared to be four different groups. One was cropped photos of young girls from toddlers to teens. Several featured nude children engaging in explicit sex acts and almost all dressed provocatively or not at all. The second set was two preteen girls fully dressed, but wearing clothing that was essentially lingerie. Oh my God. And the third group was only one girl. They were nude and suggestive photos of Sharon Marshall from the age of like five to teen. Wow. The special agents He were. put that in the principal's truck. Mm-hmm. What? 
I mean, when you're on the run, you, I guess, grab what's, what the things that matter to you. Like we would take photo albums and family heirlooms. And this guy went on the run with his manila folder full of child porn. Wow. And then I guess when he thought he was going to get caught, he like taped it to, it doesn't make sense to me. He must've been a panic when he left the, the pickup truck or maybe it was found and he didn't expect it, you know? Yeah. And then his car was just gone, you know? I have no idea, but that's how they found it. But there was also a fourth set and the fourth set was equally, if not more, oh disturbing. God, mm-hmm. You're giving me indigestion right now. Guys, I told you, it's not an easy one. No. This is a very interesting case insofar as that you can believe that a human being is capable of this. That's why it's it's fascinating, but it's terrible. But this is a this is a hard one. I mean, we do probably like nine times out of 10, like jealous lovers and, and insurance schemes. Yeah. It's a lot easier to handle than the entire life erasure of a child. I just like wish you would have warned me to take some Toms or something, you know? (laughs) Do you want to take a break? It's okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So this guy, is going to get a little brutal. If you want to do a 30 second skip, I would get, I would totally understand at this point too. I would get, I would get it. So, The last set featured a young woman in her late teens or early 20s who was blindfolded and whose hands were bound. Her face was clearly beaten really bad, like really, really bad. In another photo, he had her posed in a way where her vagina and butt were completely exposed. Okay. And there were small burn marks around her anus. What? The woman was deeply tanned and appeared to have breast implants. All of the photos showed a badly tortured woman who was forced into degrading positions and looked like she was barely clinging to life. Oh, my God. I mean, this is like some snuff shit. So Special Agent Fitzpatrick believed now that they should be looking for another victim. Because at this point, at at seeing these photos, he doesn't believe that the woman survived her ordeal. The tan one? Yeah, the tan woman who's in these photos. And in the way that she's like posed, she had like a, there was a bra and like a shirt pulled up in some of the scenes. So they're like, we're going to try to figure out who this woman is. Okay. So they start looking into Jane Doe's. They actually send out a teletype to the states that Floyd was known to live in looking um, for unsolved cases that fit the woman in the photos. And they also decide to dig into Sharon's life with her kidnapper to see if A, they could discover her true identity, but also B, if this is like, it seems like this woman was a similar age to Sharon potentially. So maybe this was a friend of hers. Like if they can figure out what they were doing at this point, they can maybe figure out this other woman's identity. Yeah. So they release photos of Sharon in the areas that she went to middle school and high school. And they find a woman named Jennifer Fisher Tanner, who is Sharon's best friend. Jennifer met a teenage Sharon in 1984 at a youth leadership conference and immediately took a liking to her. Sharon was beautiful and brilliant. She was just a little over five feet with blonde hair, sparkling blue eyes, and a sweet smile. This is her. Yeah, I know. She's so pretty. She's like, guys, we always get shit because I'm always like very, (laughs) I'm very like nice and I think that everyone's good looking, but this woman is genuinely like, 
I mean, she looks like kind of like a Reese Witherspoon or she something. She looks like a Barbie. Yeah. She looks like a Barbie. Yeah. I mean, she's just a, a beautiful girl. And so she was like outgoing and she was smart. She told Jennifer that she wanted to go to Georgia Tech and study aerospace engineering. So eventually she could work for NASA. When the FBI interviews Jennifer, they ask her if anything ever seemed amiss with her father, Warren. And Jennifer replied, yeah, I mean, there was some major issues, but we kind of were like, it must be okay, though, because Sharon turned out so well. The FBI was like, oh, hold up. Okay. Like, your friend is dead. And when we found her, you know, she was engaging. Is this a triple? Is this like a triple name thing? Well, let's, let's stay with me here. Like, what do you mean triple name thing? Like, is she not even Sharon? Is Sharon someone else who grew no, up no, no, and no, did no, well? No, okay. no, no. Okay. <laughs> You're like, well, I can take him here on a ride. <laughs> I'm like, Jesse, I don't know if I can handle this. I thought you were just going to be like, no. turns out Sharon, <laughs> Sharon went to NASA and was the first female <laughs> astronaut to go to Mars. Wouldn't that be great? And it's someone else who I mean, kidnapped. that'd be really good for Sharon. No, it'd be awesome. That would be great for Sharon. Yeah, but... Alas, that is not the case. Okay. So basically, like, Jennifer has this idea of who her friend is. Yep. And the FBI is like, you know, she ended up having, resorting to sex work. And, you know, she clearly, by the time at 23, had had several pregnancies, they believe. Yeah. And it just seemed like it, it didn't match up mentally for them who that high schooler had been and and where only a few short years later yeah her life ended up yeah you know and when jennifer hears how sharon's life ended up she just starts crying hysterically she like cannot reconcile this person and she's like no you guys don't know her at all she was on the honor roll she had incredible grades she was in the ROTC and she eventually even received a full-ride scholarship to Georgia Tech, the school of her dreams. What? hmm When the FBI showed her the photos of Sharon from the manila envelope, placing tape over her genitals yeah. to censor it, Jennifer just could not stop crying, and she confirmed that the child and the young woman in the photos was her best friend, the girl she had known as Sharon Marshall. For the first time ever, both Jennifer and the FBI could begin to understand the strength and incredible human spirit that encompassed Sharon, a kidnapped child who was sexually trafficked and molested her entire life, who was also a straight A student, a kind and loving friend and a go getter who had dreams. Crazy. She didn't like give up and turn inside on herself. She she kept fighting and. I think also she was still fighting for the life that she knew she deserved and that she could achieve. And he just did up not until let her. the very end. He wouldn't, of course, he wouldn't let her. That is so fucked. Jennifer filled in the FBI with all she knew about Warren and discussed how, in retrospect, it was odd that a young girl had drawers of lingerie and provocative clothing. The one and only night that Jennifer was allowed to stay the night in the trailer that Sharon and Warren lived in. Oh, my God. Could you imagine being Jennifer's parents? I can't believe that they let her even one time because this guy was so unhinged. Yeah. Like, it, it, they, Jennifer also talked about how 
like when Sharon came over, Warren like would come over and he'd be like, I'm a like house painter. Can I paint your house? And they were like, no, we're fine. And he's like, well, here's my cards. Give them out to your friends. And then he even like asked the father of Jennifer for a loan at one point. This is just some random guy who is the father of your kid's friend. And they were very uneasy about him. But at this point, Jennifer's 14 and Sharon's like 15 or 16. And she begs, begs, begs her parents like to be allowed to spend the night over at Sharon's. They'd be like, nope. Yeah. No, No. sir. She can come over here. Exactly. she She can come on, move in. Please. Please. But no. So they let her one singular time and... He took the girls out to a dance club, like an over 18 or 21 even. I don't know, dance club. I don't know how he got the bouncer to let them in. They're 14 and 15-ish. I used to go to dance clubs when I was like 15, 16. Really? In Chicago? In Ohio, actually. There was a dance club called Shooters that was in a strip mall. Was it 18 and up or 21? 16 plus. Oh, that doesn't count. Those like kids clubs. Yeah, but did they serve like, alcohol? I don't think so. See, that's different. But there was a lot of grinding. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad used to drive us in his like Durango. I would let my kids go to that. You would? I think if there's not alcohol involved, I'm and sure there's alcohol all, involved. Was it, it all teenagers? There. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was like 18 is- to 21 or whatever. 18 to 21? I think so. Yeah. 16 to 21. 16 to 21. Yeah. Sorry. But isn't that, that's still like, seems- that's a really serious range. Yeah. <laughs> like if it was like 14 to eight, no, that's still, a, I don't know. You know, that's, I don't know. If I, love my kids go. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't like, know. Why did you guys let me go to this? Yeah. So, but they, he took her to like a legit, like club, 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 club. Yeah. club. And Unreal. he had the girls like get dressed up. And that's when she noticed that she had all this like lingerie and these like mini skirts and stuff. Whoa. And they like got dressed up in this like they both wore like provocative outfits, but like nothing bad happened. He actually ended up like dropping them off and they had fun dancing and they were like obviously hit on by a lot of creepy guys, but they got out completely unscathed. What happened afterwards was the scary thing. He took them home and they were like being teenage girls. They're like giggling, laughing, and they're talking about all the creepy guys who tried to like dance with them and how they like turned them down. Yeah. And how they like saved each other from yes. dancing. Yeah. And they're like having fun. And he had previously, like when he dropped them off, he said, I want to go to sleep. So shut up, basically. And so they're just like chatting and laughing. And he bursts in with a gun and is like, I told you to shut the fuck up. And if you don't shut up, I'm going to kill you. And Jennifer's like, not used to that behavior. And apparently, like, they had been getting undressed for bed. So she was also shocked that he just burst in there because Sharon wasn't wearing a top. Oh like, she was getting her pajamas God. on. And so he's like, she's like, this is really weird. My I would dad. have called my mom and dad right then. She was terrified. She didn't even, like, know what to do. And Sharon was, like, shaking. She was so scared. And she was like, I'm so sorry. Sometimes he's just like this. Like, I'm so, so sorry you had to witness this. So, you know, obviously Jennifer never went over there again, but she never told her parents what happened because she was afraid that if she told her parents, they would never let her hang out with Sharon. Of course, yeah. You know? And the whole time she's some poor kidnapped little girl. That just wants to have a normal life and have normal friends. And it sounds like also that no one else came forward having been Sharon's friends or Suzanne's friends or even Tanya's friend, really. Whoa. Like she, he had for some reason allowed her to have this one singular friend. And it sounds like that's all she got. Whoa. 
it's devastating. After that, like Jennifer just straight up is like, I'm never going over there again. No. Like Sharon can come over whenever she wants. But despite that, Warren seemed obsessed with getting Jennifer back into his sights. Ew. Mm-hmm. So eventually at some point, the two girls move away from each other. I think Sharon ends up in South Carolina with okay. Warren. And they're still best friends. Like they write each other letters. They talk on the phone all the time. And even Sharon comes to visit back in Atlanta, okay. uh, Jennifer's family. And one time that Jennifer noted, she got a specifically like strained call from Sharon begging for a visit. She said, Jenny, I need you. I really need you. Sharon spoke with a strangeness Jennifer had never heard before. There was something in her voice that suggested Sharon didn't really want Jennifer to visit, but was being forced to make the request. She could hear Sharon saying, I want you to come, but she could see in her head, Sharon's head shaking back and forth. No, don't come. Whoa. Sharon was crying and Jennifer could hear the phone being yanked out of Sharon's hands. What kind of friend are you if you can't come up and visit her? It was Warren. He asked to talk to her parents, but Jennifer said they weren't home. Mr. Marshall, I can't come up. It's impossible. I'm sorry, said Jennifer, who heard a click and then a dial tone. So the FBI believed that if Jennifer had gone, Floyd would have killed her. He thinks that he was trying to get his hands on another teenage girl, which maybe he likes the way Jennifer looked and maybe that's why he allowed Sharon to be friends with her. Yeah. That's an annoying speculation by the FBI, but. <laughs> that, that he would have killed her yeah. without knowing. Well, they told her. They were like, you did the right thing. Of course she By did. trusting yeah. your gut, you yeah. could have ended up murdered yeah. by that man. Or you know? like worse. Yes. Yes. You could have been. Tortured. Sex slave. Tortured. Sex slave. Forced into sex work like Sharon ultimately is. Uh, yep. Through Jennifer, they found out that Sharon had gotten pregnant her senior year of high school, thus dashing her dreams for Georgia Tech. Ugh. The father was a high school boy named Curtis. Curtis and Sharon attempted to run away together and made it as far as Alabama before Floyd tracked them down in a motel and told Curtis the baby wasn't his and to leave Sharon alone forever. We don't know whether that yeah. baby who was, we don't know who it was. It was. Yeah. Afterwards, Sharon and Warren moved to Arizona where Sharon had the baby boy and gave it up for adoption. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Also, if you're being forced to give up a child for adoption, I mean, I think it's hard even if you're choosing. Yeah. But can you imagine no. having Echo and then saying goodbye to her immediately no. after? No. Ugh, poor girl. A few months later, Sharon came for a visit and at first seemed to be back as her happy, bubbly self. But as the end of the visit grew closer, Sharon grew tense and eventually asked the Fisher family if she could come live with them. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So this is an account from A Beautiful Child. Sharon explained that she didn't like Arizona. Her life wasn't good there and she wanted to remain in Atlanta, a familiar city. Most of all, she wanted to be with the Fisher family. Sue Fisher listened, but told Sharon she didn't think it would be possible. It wasn't that the Fishers didn't want Sharon. They loved her. Instead, Sue explained that it would be up to her father to decide. Sharon said no, arguing that it was her decision, and she pleaded with Sue to change her mind. Oh, it's not even her dad. 
Sue sensed a change in Sharon, a desperation. She asked if something was wrong, if there were other reasons why she wanted to leave her father. But Sharon said no. I'd really like to stay here, she said, her voice cracking with emotion. Why don't you ask your father? If he approves, then we'd be happy for you to stay with us. Sharon shook her head. No, that's not a good idea. Sue turned to her husband, Joel, who had walked into the room and explained that Sharon wanted to live with the Fishers. Joel didn't like Warren Marshall, but he agreed with his wife. They could not and would not take responsibility for a young woman who already had a parent. It's not her fucking dad. But it's not her. But they don't know. I know. That's so crazy. Sharon decided to end the conversation as abruptly as it began. You know what? I was thinking I have to go home. I keep my dad's books and he's lost without me. I, I don't know what I was thinking. As a matter of fact, I should call him. The next day, as the Fishers put Sharon on a plane, not knowing they were sending her back to her abuser, and they also bought her a plane ticket because he was like, she can ride the bus all the way from Atlanta to Arizona. And they were like, um, no, we're not putting this underage child on a... Overnight three-day bus ride. Yeah, no. So they like... Psycho. They paid for her to go on a flight. Yeah, yeah. And while they're dropping her off, they were really surprised because she'd always been so upbeat and cheerful. And she's just hysterically crying, like, while they're dropping her off at the airport. And Jennifer and the Fishers would never see Sharon alive again. Whoa. Now, looking at the photos and hearing the stories of Sharon's life, Jennifer felt sick, sad, and devastated. Yeah, but... Oh, she can't blame herself on that. No, I mean, the whole family can't. I do think there's, like, a, a very important line between minding your own business and, yeah. you know, not interfering with other families. But if your antenna is going up and... At this point, at, like, nowadays. Nowadays, yeah. there's something clearly wrong. Yeah. Or even just be like, why don't I talk to your dad and we extend your visit? Yeah. And then try to find out more, you know, or something. I don't, I mean, I don't think that they're to blame. They can't, they didn't, no. they couldn't know at all, no. you know, but it's just, I think I would never, I would beat myself up over this. If you found out this about yeah. one of like Echo's little friends growing yeah. up, you know, it would be too much for me to emotionally handle that I, I just didn't know. But that's the thing is that Sharon didn't present as an abused child. Yeah. She was outgoing and doing great in school and getting yeah. full ride scholarships and achieving. And she didn't seem to have any of those warning signs, even in her school picture, she's smiling, yeah. you know, kind of, kind of her eyes look sad. huh? Yeah, She's not super smiling. She's beautiful, but she's not smart. I wouldn't say she looks like a joyful child. No. Yeah, they did. The Fisher did describe her as very upbeat though. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So in Arizona, Sharon worked as a hostess in a restaurant and some regular businessman became so charmed with the bright young woman that they offered to pay her tuition at Arizona State University. Whoa. That's how bright and charming and promising that she seemed. Yeah. So, you know, they said that they wanted to talk to her dad about setting up a trust for her because they understood that he was like a kind of out of work wow, painter. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And so they're like, let's like talk with your dad and see what we can do to fund you going back to school. Because they were like, why is this brilliant young woman in the restaurant all day, every day when she's yeah. like 18, you yeah. know? So he had a meeting with these guys and he completely completely like blew off their of course, he huge opportunity and he was tried to pitch them on investing in his house painting business 
Wow. Yeah. And so they were obviously so turned off at this point that they rescinded their tuition offer. And they were like, we're really sorry if you ever need anything, reach out. But like, clearly this is, your dad's not interested and we can't do it without like your dad's approval. I wonder why since she's 18. I don't know either. I don't know what the situation was. Okay. But I, I also think though that like maybe Warren like weirded people out to the point where they're like, this is mm, not worth it. Yeah. Like, if I do this, I'm involved with this whole family. Yeah, yep, yep. You know? So it was at this same restaurant that Sharon met and began dating a young college student named Greg Higgs, who would end up being Michael's biological father. And I do not know, like, if she was sneaking around. I don't know how she managed to date at all, like, whether or not that guy Curtis was, like, I the mean, real dad. he had to probably let her so it didn't look too suspicious, right? I, I guess so. But yeah. I'm also wondering, because he was a pedophile, if, like, he wanted her. But no, but then he wouldn't have given up the other baby for adoption. I just don't, I don't know why he didn't, like, have her do, on birth control. I, I don't know why there were so many opportunities for her to get pregnant, you know? Was the other, we don't know if the other baby was his or not. We don't know whether the yeah. other babies was his. Yeah, maybe he couldn't have kids. Maybe he couldn't have kids. I don't know. So so this guy, Greg Higgs, that she dates in Arizona, ends up being Michael's biological father. Okay. It was later confirmed through DNA. Okay. So Warren and Sharon had left town for Florida when Sharon found out she was pregnant. She basically found out she was pregnant and Warren's like, we're moving again and, and didn't tell Greg. Greg didn't even know he had a son until prosecutors matched his DNA to a sample that was taken from Michael during the custody dispute. Wow. By the time he found out he had a child, that child was kidnapped and presumed dead. Oh my God. Can you imagine the mind fuck that is? No. It's crazy. Both Greg and Jennifer testified at Floyd's kidnapping trial. Both were shocked that the bright, beautiful girl they had fallen in love with had been hiding such a horrifying secret. Yeah, that's insane. She really must have. What's it called when you like put things in different boxes in your brain? Suppress. Suppress. Compartmentalize. Compartmentalize. She must have because yeah. it seems like like none of the teachers had a clue. Like her friend and her yeah, that boyfriend. Is wild. It's it's crazy. So the two bonded, and Greg told Jennifer that if Michael was found, he would fight for custody and would like Jennifer to be his godmother. Oh. The kind thought moved Jennifer to tears. Special Agent Fitzpatrick also testified at the kidnapping trial, which was quite frankly a slam dunk. The judge and jury certainly thought so, and Floyd was found guilty and sentenced to 52 years. Yes! In finally. jail. No possibility for parole. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's going to die there. It wasn't a death sentence, but it's basically a death sentence. Yeah. Meanwhile, a Jane Doe found in St. Petersburg, Florida, looked like it might be connected to the tortured brunette from Floyd's disgusting collection. A year earlier, a laborer who'd been clearing parts of the I-275 had decided to go for a pee, going through a hole in a chain-link fence and stepping into the brush when he made a grisly discovery. No. The man, who was named Terry Lee Richard, saw what he thought was a half-buried volleyball and kicked it over, revealing two gaping eye sockets. Jessica, can you even imagine that is so brutal that description 
That was the description from the book. Holy shit. Also, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe just don't go kicking stuff. Maybe just don't go kicking stuff. <laughs> Maybe just don't go thinking that there's just random volleyballs Balls. hanging around. He thought it was Wilson. Then you won't be so shook about there being two eye sockets oh. gaping Ooh. in your description. Yeah. Oh, gaping was probably my word. Okay. Yeah. You squeeze that in there. Sorry. Yeah. I just wanted the emotional impact of the moment. I think it would have done. Okay. <laughs> so the Florida State Police were summoned and after a search, other bones, bone fragments, hair, teeth, clothing, and jewelry were discovered. The medical examiner discovered two holes in the back of the skull and ruled the death a homicide. Obviously gunshots. He estimated it was a white woman between the ages of 16 and 20 who had been badly beaten and then shot. They discovered the body in 1995, but the M.E. believed that she had been dumped there some years before, perhaps even as far back as 1990, but it was hard to tell. A year after the body was found in 1996, investigators were no closer to identifying the woman or her killer when the FBI came a-calling, trying to make a match for the woman in the photos. Immediately, the investigators knew they were on to something. The clothing in the photo, a bikini top and a shirt, matched the clothing found with the Jane Doe exactly. What? Exactly. I mean, what are the odds of that? He didn't even take the, sh- the clothing? He just dumped it all together. Wow. Mm-hmm. Since Floyd lived in the Tampa area in 1988. I was going to say, is this Tampa, the 275? Mm-hmm. 1989. They expanded their missing person search to those years. So previously, the ME thought it was only as old as 1990. So they didn't look for the like missing persons records of 88 and 89. But now that they knew that's when he was in Tampa. Yeah. Then they expanded the search and they got a hit on a 19-year-old woman named Cheryl Ann Camesso, who had been reported missing in June of 1989. They get her dental records and bada bing, bada boom, it's a match. Whoa. They soon find out that Sharon and Cheryl Ann worked at the same strip club in Tampa. Sharon had first gotten a job at the club called Mons Venus in January of 1988 and was initially told to lose some weight to be a dancer. However, Sharon wasn't fat. She was pregnant with Michael by this time, having left Arizona and Greg Higgs behind. To the club manager's shock, many of the club regulars said that they liked having a pregnant dancer around. Yeah. And Sharon worked until the day she gave birth to Michael on April 21st, 1988. I was going to say. That's crazy to me. Also, I just can't imagine dancing and shooting the shit with creeps like that pregnant. I had very little patience. I know, but I'm sure there's like some dudes with that fetish. Apparently they were all for it. Yeah. And of course, her kidnapper is making her do this. I was just going to say, I was saying, hopefully she made some good money, but then it. But she just handed it over to him. There was there was nothing. She couldn't even squirrel everything away. Yeah. Shortly after giving birth, she returned to the club where she didn't make a ton of friends. It's like kind of interesting that she made such close friends with Connie at Passions in Tulsa. Yeah. Because it seemed like at the club in Florida that her quiet ways and like nose in the book seemed to imply arrogance to those who worked with her. So they didn't like completely like love her yeah i could have just been being pregnant though too like that they were like like, you were just saying you're just different yeah Yeah. like you're like i have 
like swollen legs and cankles. Like I don't really want to talk about some bullshit. And like it's not like you can do drugs or drink or party with the girls either because you're fucking yeah, pregnant. Yeah, there's like, very little bonding. Yeah. It also didn't help that when she was Tanya, at least it was her husband who was a creep. Yeah. They were like kind of like something's going on with this girl and her dad. Yeah. And that's weird. Yeah. Because he would try to come into the club to see her performances. And they were like, who, what kind of father wants to come in and watch his daughter? Pregnant daughter. Pregnant daughter dance nude. So yeah, they were like, no, you can't be in here. And they like, were like very strict about it. They're like, we don't let any of the like boyfriends, husbands of the girls come in, partners in any way. We're not going to let their dads come in. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So, I mean, the worst part also is that they knew that he was pimping her out. So at this point, he's also getting her involved in bachelor parties and sex work. And he's trying to break her into adult films. Okay. And Sharon didn't want to be doing this. This is not what she wanted to be an aerospace engineer. This was not a choice on her part, obviously. And so people knew that like, I don't know. I guess that they were kind of more like, not my circus, not my monkeys. That's a mess over there, and I'm going to deal with my own mess, you know? I'm sure these girls all had shit going on. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, and also at this point, Warren's not working at all, so he's just living off of her income. He had, like, some sort of back injury involved on a painting job, Mm -hmm. of course. He, in order to, like, what he thinks, like, help her break into the adult film industry, forced her to have breast and butt implants and get lipo from a bottom-of-the-barrel plastic surgeon who botched the boobs terribly. In Tampa. In Tampa. he In paid. He only paid $1,500 for the boob job. And she didn't want it done. Of course not. Yeah. In January of 1989, Cheryl Ann started dancing at the Mons and befriended Sharon and Warren. Warren lying, of course. Like, Cheryl wanted to be famous. Like, she wanted to, like, eventually get to Hollywood. Okay. And he lied to her and told her he had some connections to the film industry. Mm-hmm. And he convinced her to shoot a video with Sharon on the beach where the girls massaged each other and engaged in sexual acts. Oh, my God. After her roommates kicked her out, Cheryl moved in briefly with the Marshalls. And while on a boat once with Warren, Cheryl refused to have sex with him and he flew into a rage, attacking the young woman and attempting to choke her to death. She managed to fight him off and swim to shore, but she was pissed. Cheryl decided to hurt Warren where it mattered most, Sharon and his wallet. She called Florida Social Services to report that Sharon was drawing an unemployment check despite making more than $1,500 a week working as a nude dancer. $1,500 a week in 1989? Yeah, and they apparently couldn't get a better plastic surgeon. I mean, that's just torture if you force her to go with the cheapest person that botches the job Uh, social services called Sharon and told her that her welfare checks would be stopped pending further investigation Warren was very 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 angry and went to the club to confront Cheryl and she ended up coming out at some point and he even managed to pull her against her will into his car but one of the other dancers saw what was happening and screamed for the bouncers and the bouncers came out and saved her. Whoa. And then Cheryl and Warren apparently like started yelling at each other and eventually Warren just like took off. A week after that fight, Cheryl went missing. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. 
Meanwhile, poor Sharon was pregnant again. And there were rumors that the baby was Sharon's own father's. When confronted by another dancer, Sharon broke down and admitted the truth. Oh, no. She said, you don't understand, Sharon, between tears. He's not my real father. Then who is he, said Heather. He's my stepfather. He's been molesting me for years, ever since I was a child. Sharon crumpled onto a chair, her head buried between her legs, the crying now more like an anguished squeal. She had finally admitted something she had kept hidden her entire life. Sharon, listen, father or no father, you're going to have to leave this guy. Go to the police. Go to somebody. Get your kid and get away from him, said Heather. I can't do it, shrieked Sharon. You don't understand. He's done things. I saw it. I know what he can do. And if he ever heard me talking like this, he'd kill me and Michael. He has friends everywhere. I can't leave him. I just can't. I know he would find me and I know he'd hurt Michael. Sharon shot up from her chair as terrible thoughts crossed her mind. Heather, you can't say anything about this. Please promise me you won't say anything. Sharon was scared for her life and the life of her son, and Heather could see the terror in her eyes. Jesus. So Sharon quit the club, and after torching their trailer for insurance money, oh my God. Warren and Sharon made their way to New Orleans, where they got married as Clarence and Tanya Hughes on June 15th, 1989. Whoa. Yes, so the FBI believe that Floyd forced Sharon to marry him after she witnessed Cheryl Ann's murder, believing that if they were married, she couldn't be compelled to testify against him. Also, if she did witness what happened to Cheryl, she would be rightly terrified. By the time Cheryl was reported missing in July of 1989, Floyd and Sharon were long gone. Wow. They remained in New Orleans long enough for Sharon to deliver a baby girl on August 11th, 1989. The baby was immediately adopted by a couple and the birth father remains unknown. Okay. After this, they traveled on to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Sharon began working at Passions and befriended Connie, as well as college student Kevin, whom she had planned to run away with before she was murdered. While in prison for kidnapping, Floyd told a cellmate that he had killed Tanya by hitting her on the back of the head and making it look like a hit and run. But another time, he also told somebody he actually just ran her over with his car. Okay. The reason why the cops could never prove this one is because the paint flecks found were red and his vehicle was blue. Weird. So I don't know. It's possible he stole a car and hit her. Yeah. You know? There was nothing that they could really definitively tie to him other than he's a creep who has a history and there's motive. Yeah. There was no physical evidence. Okay. Yeah. It was basically like they felt like he did it, but he also like lied so much about everything that they couldn't say. Like if there was one guy saying like, this is how he did it. Another guy was like, this is how he did it. And then a third would say he didn't do it at all. Yeah. You know? So they couldn't officially close the chapter on Sharon, but they were going to certainly try to get a conviction for Cheryl Ann. So on November 12th, 1997, Floyd Delano Franklin was charged with first degree murder. In 2001, against Floyd's wishes, his court appointed attorneys attempted to get him declared unfit to stand trial. In fact, Franklin wished to be executed, saying rather melodramatically, I will trudge the last miles to the death house, crumpled before the legal system towards the electric chair, which awaits me like the mother I once loved. Yeah, no, motherfucker, you don't get that. You don't get to be put upon over here. Nope. You're not a martyr. Yeah, you're not a martyr. Come on. 
Despite his attorney's best efforts, Floyd was ruled competent and stood trial for the murder of Cheryl Ann on September 9th, 2002. The most damning evidence was the photos that were found in the stolen truck. In fact, dumbass Floyd had even captured his own thumb in one of the photos of Cheryl, and a hand expert testified that it absolutely belonged to Franklin Floyd. Lol. Floyd didn't help himself by any measure either. His temper was on full display as he screamed at the judge that he was innocent and yelled obscenities at witnesses as they passed the defense table. On September 28th, 2002, the verdict was delivered and unsurprisingly, it was guilty. (laughs) Franklin Delano Floyd was sentenced to death by lethal injection. However, the FBI was not done with Floyd and they were determined to discover the identity of Sharon and what really happened to little Michael. In 2014, 10 years since Matt Birkbeck wrote A Beautiful Child and 12 years since Franklin Floyd was sentenced to death, he finally gave them a thread of information that unraveled the mystery. Ugh. In 1974 and on the run from jumping bail, Floyd went by the alias Brandon Williams and met a sex worker named Sandy Chipman at a North Carolina truck stop. Sandy had four children, five-year-old Suzanne Savakis from her first husband and three-year-old Allison, two-year-old Amy, and infant Philip from her second marriage. Floyd managed to convince Sandy to marry him after one month of dating and moved to Dallas, Texas. In 1975, she was sentenced to jail for 30 days for passing bad checks. While she was incarcerated, Floyd disappeared with her children oh my god kidnapped four children whoa sandy eventually found her middle daughters amy and allison with a church-run children's home but could never locate her oldest daughter suzanne or baby philip because she had married floyd and given him custody while she was in jail oh my god the police said that the child wasn't technically missing and thus no missing person report was ever filed for little suzanne savakis who is of course our sharon marshall slash you're a sex worker so we don't give a shit about what 100%. you're saying 100 percent. that is so fucked up so infuriating and they just had no idea where baby philip was In 2019, a man came forward believing that he may be Philip, the youngest of Sandy Chipman's children. And in 2020, through DNA testing, he was proven to be correct. Wow. Floyd had given the baby up for adoption. Whoa. But he was alive. Isn't that a miracle? Yes. So maybe that's what happened, Michael? No. Oh, no. The family was relieved to have some sort of closure on the situation, but deeply saddened by what happened to Suzanne. The very thin silver lining is that the family actually got connected with Suzanne's daughter that she gave up for adoption in Florida. And apparently she was at the time of that discovery, a gorgeous and thriving college student. So now she's a gorgeous and thriving college grad, which also is just like so... Sad and sweet, though, that her daughter, who she gave up, whom I'm sure she loved dearly, accomplished the goal that she was never able to, you know. In 2015, Floyd finally admitted what happened to Michael. And the FBI, I'm not sure if they did like polygraphs or how they have determined that they believe this is the absolute truth. 
he killed Michael on the same day of the kidnapping. What? Kid never stood a chance. Floyd said he realized the child did not love him the way he wanted him to any longer, and he didn't believe he would be able to raise the young victim as a fugitive as he had his mother. He shot the child twice in the back of the head and left him in the woods. Oh, my God. The FBI extensively searched the area, but they believed that his corpse had been desecrated and carried away by wild hogs that inhabited the area. Oh, my God. That poor baby. Oh, his poor foster parents, too. Yeah. Author Matt Birkbeck and Suzanne's family attended a ceremony to change Suzanne's name on the Tulsa gravestone that used to read just Tanya. And Megan, the daughter that she had given up for adoption, was pregnant at the ceremony and told everyone that she planned to name her son Michael after the brother she never got a chance to know. Whoa. That story is bonkers. Yeah, big, big thanks to Chantel and Gia. Yeah, how did they know about that? Um, I actually, you know, it's funny. I had the book already. Really? When Chantel sent it to me, when she emailed us. And I was like, oh my God, yes. Like I, I like go through buying spurts. Well, yeah. I like order 15 books from thrift books. Yeah. Um, and so I had this book and I kind of knew the story. And I'm so glad that you guys brought it back to my attention because it's a really meaningful story. It's a crazy story. It's an important one. So thank you guys so much. Love your recommendations always. And we really, really appreciate you. And yeah, thank you so much for the great reviews. Oh my God, the reviews. uh, You guys have been so nice. Also, we posted something on Instagram and you guys had the sweetest comments to say, like literally we're together. So we're like, did you see that one? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) You are really touching our hearts. So we thank you so much. And it's, it's so nice to have such cool, cool listeners on, you know, what can be a pretty heavy subject. So we thank you. This was such a heavy episode, guys, that we're not going to do like our usual funny bit at the end, but we are going to say that we hope you all keep your heads on a swivel and trust your guts when it comes to love so no one else gets murdered. Yeah. Love you all. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.